And this question comes from Traveller. Hi, Traveller. Traveller says, what insights into narcissism can we learn from the Jungian model? Right, thank you, um, Traveller. Freud was very big on narcissism. It formed a, a significant chunk of his, his approach. Less so with Jung, who tended to follow Freud up to a point and then diversify into his own interests. In a clinical setting, I don't actually think that either of them give you uh, the optimal approach to dealing with narcissism. Narcissism is, is defined differently according to the different schools of therapy and to the different diagnostic um, sources that you might go to. So really you'd have to resolve down for yourself precisely what you mean in a specific context by narcissism. Mm. But I would take it to be a personality disorder or a disorder of character. And in that sense, it's more likely to be genetic in origin than anything else. Um, the psychosocial elements are where all the problems are caused because narcissists seldom trouble themselves, they trouble other people. So I would say that from my perspective clinically, I find myself dealing with the effects of narcissism on other people. Narcissists themselves are extremely resilient uh, to any kind of positive therapeutic change. Although one, I guess, interesting Jungian insight you can get from them is the very curious phenomenon that their shadow is the complete polar opposite to what it is for normal people. For example, you will find that normal people will become embarrassed when their shadow slips out and then they realise that they have metaphorically become beside themselves and they're shocked by that and they take it back in. Um, with narcissists, however, they get very surprised when they do something that's decent and they're embarrassed by it. And, and they do do things like that now and again. And Where it's not crafted deliberately to manipulate another person and they've been literally taken by surprise by their own shadow, you see the same degree of embarrassment with them for being nice than you do with a nice person for being not nice. So you do literally see that reversal of polarity of the shadow uh, with narcissism from a Jungian perspective. It's, uh, it's almost amusing if the narcissist wasn't such a toxic individual. It would be something to, be, to, be, to frankly find yourself being amused by because of the irony of the fact that their shadow is the total opposite. But um, in daily life observations, that's probably the clearest Jungian element that you can see. Their shadow is positive, whereas for most people it's considered to be negative. This is one of the things with narcissism, is it's one of those diagnoses that's thrown around all over the place. Yeah. And we were talking behind the scenes recently, and you made some posts on the Young to Live by Discord, mm. about uh, narcissism involving anima projection as well. Yes. I was thinking that in terms of the Jungian model. That's, that's a good point. you were saying narcissism is a personality disorder, but this yeah. is not. This is a, a, a this other form, if you like, is a product of youth, or is a product of... Thank you, James. That. For, for, I think it'd be for, cool to go into it. For reminding me of that. Yeah. This, this is connected deeply to the concept of the anima and uh, particularly the idea of uh, falling in love with your, your anima projection onto another person. In some ways that is narcissistic because, uh, and this is, is worthy of a podcast all on its own, the anima is not a woman. It's projected onto a woman. It's part of male psychology. The reverse is also true. The animus is not a man. It's not an inner man in the same way that the anima is not an inner woman. 
The animus is part of a woman's psychology. It is therefore feminine psychology. This is probably difficult for some people to get their head around because they're used to the, the way that Jungians normally refer to those constructs. But when a man projects his anima onto a woman, he is projecting a part of his own psychology onto the object of the other person. And what he falls in love with then is something that he's carrying within himself. And by conceiving of that relationship that he is aspiring to as something that completes him, that is, if you like, a kind of narcissism in the sense that the Greeks understood it to be. It's a form of self-love which is projected onto the other. Now, beneath all of that, of course, we have, um, we have Darwinistic and biological um, drives uh, which are unconscious and uh, very, very powerful, but at a psychological level it is an attempt to complete yourself through a form of self-love. So you could say, yeah, that, that's a Jungian form of narcissism mm. in, in that sense. Yeah, good mm. point. Yeah. And we should discuss that in depth on another podcast. We should do. On another day. All right, and this question comes from a developer, and he says, Hi, Hi all. I hope you're having a good day. Now, Steve mentioned in an earlier podcast that Jung's statistics were deeply flawed, allowing some to debunk his work mm -hmm. completely. To your knowledge, have there been any earnest inquiries with scientific thinking to study synchronicity with sound statistics? Thanks. Double smiley face. <laughs> yeah, thanks, developer. Um, the whole field of parapsychology is contentious with respect to its statistical results. Uh, they're constantly under attack um, from sceptics. To my personal knowledge, there isn't anything definitive with respect to synchronicity as framed as synchronicity. But I would recommend that you look at John Ryan Huell's book, um, Volume 2 of Young for the 21st Century, where he's looking at the neurobiology of uh, synchronicity. And that is definitely in the direction that depth psychology is moving towards the neurosciences. So I wouldn't worry too much about the statistical elements of it, it's experiential. That's the, the real proof of it, is in the experience of it within its context. That's not something that's easily amenable to statistical analysis. But if you want to look at the theory, definitely look at John Ryan uh, Huell and his work. It's uh, at the forefront of where Jungian psychology is going despite the inertia from a lot of the classical Jungians. And uh, John Ryan is a classical Jungian, but he's moving towards the more scientific end of the spectrum. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that book arriving, actually. That's yeah, it's good. It's really one. good. Really, really good. It comes with a nice front, front cover, a nice matte finish. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things, it's like, it doesn't matter, and I don't, I don't really know how you'd go about validating it, because those early tests that Jung did, they, they look to be pretty decent to me in terms of like a, an experimental setup mm. if it was legit, but as you've said before, it's been debunked. How else would you do it? I don't know. But anyone who's experienced a synchronicity, that turns out to be meaningful to them if they recognise it as such, such yeah. as ones with myself. And we've had weird ones related to we the have, channel actually. We have. Incredibly yeah, strange we stuff. We have. And paranormal. Paranormal. Yeah, and then, well. was, wasn't it the other day when we were filming something and you said the word dead? Don't do it now. But <laughs> you said the word dead and the camera shut off. Yeah, instantly, yeah. <laughs> and that was in a context which included a discussion on death and its wider implications and its, its meaning in a psychological sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've said it before, but when you work in depth with depth psychology, there is a spike in the occurrence, statistically, of synchronicities. And if you ignore them, you don't take the hint, 
then the paranormal phenomenon start as well and I've taken that over the past 40 years to be an index of how deep you're going into a situation or a relationship psychotherapeutically with someone. Yeah, it was before the most recent IPSA uh, seminar. The, mm. the, no, it was between the seminar and, and the social, I think, yeah. that uh, the, we had the Zoom thing on, and Jane looked into the Zoom camera, she obviously you can see behind you, and there was a ghost of a man. I was just doing whatever I was doing on my phone, whatever, and there was a ghost there. She's like, oh my God! And I look up, and then she's like, oh my God, there was a man there, there was a man. I just closed the door. But like, I've had enough of this. <laughs> I've had absolutely enough. It happens all the time. Yeah, it does. So, yeah. It does. It's interesting. Um, always take it within its wider context. Uh, you'll probably find there's a lot going on in your own life as well, that there's some activation of the unconscious which will be meaningful for you and for the people who are in relationship to you. So keep a weather eye open for these phenomena. Don't worry about statistical proofs either uh, because it just isn't amenable to that kind of analysis in the real world. question comes from So To Speak. So To Speak says, I'm six courses into my master's preparing to be a therapist in Texas. I've become very interested in analytical psychology and longer term therapy, but I also want to learn effective brief treatments so I can be relatively effective as soon as I start working. My idea was to get a great handle on something like solution focused brief therapy as I stay on the long road reading existentialist and psychodynamic material. What advice can you professional or experienced folks offer? In other words, Steve. Right, thank you. Yes, I understand where you're coming from on this. What I would say is, think historically. The parents of psychotherapy are medicine and hypnosis, not psychology. Psychology you could consider to be, this is academic psychology, you could consider that to be the step-parent of psychotherapy. But its real origins are in medicine, and hypnosis. Hypnosis is not one approach, it is within itself as diverse as general psychotherapy is. In my experience, without question, it is, if you get the right training, the most effective brief form of therapy, bar none. Nothing can touch it. Whether that would satisfy you personally is another matter and that's something for you to, to think about, but I would not be without it clinically at all. And when we train people at IPSA, their, their first year is taken up in learning clinical hypnosis and then its application with respect to psychobiology, psychosocial issues and also intrapsychic exploration, reframing, whatever you want to call it. So I would recommend, if you're asking me personally, definitely go and find yourself apex level hypnotherapy training. Uh, as for existentialism and psychodynamics, I suspect, and I, um, forgive me if I'm wrong here, that that has more to do with personal development on your own part than it does with, with clinical efficacy. Existentialism is fine as a philosophy and it, it's fine uh, to help you develop a value set, uh, but in my own experience very, very few people would fit with that as a therapeutic model. There are existential psychotherapies, I'm familiar with a lot of the leading figures in it, personally familiar, within the UK anyway. Um, so I, I, I would go towards apex level hypnotherapy and leave the rest for the moment uh, for your own personal development. Alright, and this question comes from Nightchild and he asks, what is the role of typology in addressing a complex? 
Would you approach the same complex differently in two people of different types? Thank you. I was thinking about this, it might be fun for us to do a little role play. Of course this will require you in the audience to understand typology to some degree anyway. Yeah. So myself, INTP, so if I came to you with a complex of some kind and you could see the complex, you can see into my psyche, and I'm, and I'm an INTP, how would the fact there was an INTP sort of play into that sort of um, therapeutic process that you'd want to enact on myself? Apart from the fact I'm a blatant overthinker. Well, I, I'm your polar opposite for a start, James, being an ESFJ. Mm. So I would have to be careful probably about the kind of language I use for a start to, to open up any right. question. So you wouldn't ask me how I feel? Probably not, no. no. I don't think that would go down too well, do you? No, no, not at all. <laughs> so what, you two, you'd, you'd phrase things based on what my dominant function would be or my auxiliary function? Well, I would, um, and I, obviously I'd be... Um, working probably on your introverted thinking because that would be your dominant function yeah. and uh, certainly with respect to say something like your negative anima that's likely yes. to be hiding in yes. there yes. Um, and so I would be interested in that probably you know quite specifically really that's true actually yeah You've, you've so do you, do you recognise it as hiding in there, do you? I do know. Well, it it's always a difficult thing to see, isn't it? But in, in the beginning, that was uh, one of the first things both of you said about myself, was like, you think too much. Right. It's like, what does that mean? Yes. It's a weird thing, but it's like, that's where your negative anima is operating. And it's setting up all these weird choices for you, and you think you're being a smart boy, when actually you're not. It's something else that's sort of driving that. So I guess that's a general rule, look at the dominant function, that's where the negative it's, syzygy is hiding. Yes, yes, obviously negative anima for a man and negative animus for a woman, yeah. and, and you need to know something about psychological type in order to know yeah. where it might be hiding. Yeah. Right. And because relating is such a, you know, an important thing, mm. isn't it? It's, it's, it's the stuff of life, really, relating, mm. and that's, that's certainly an important place to look. Mm. It's the go-to place, really, to find out what's really going on. And as, as we know, you might be the last, not you specifically, but whoever it is might be the last person to know that it's hiding in there and it's actually yeah. running the show. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so um, I guess in terms of pacing and leading me in a therapeutic process or any introverted thinking type, you, you would pace it in the form of problems and logic then, if I understand it correctly, in terms of how to get at me. So if you're saying that you wouldn't necessarily say how are you feeling, yes. like you're the feeling type, yes. you'd be like, so what do you think about this? Is that, is that what you mean in that regard? Well, yes, I mean, the kind of, that's what I mean about the kind of language that you use, yeah. obviously, will be more familiar to you in terms of how you, you construct your reality. Mm. Um, but it would go beyond just language as well, because yeah. it would be to do with obviously the kind of behaviour and the, that you emit, and the kinds of um, the kinds of problems that you might bring into therapy with you. So mm. it would be important to to obviously see how that was playing out mm. in your life, and, and and how conscious or otherwise you you know mm. you were of that. So yeah. Yeah, I guess it's more difficult for myself to just generally answer the question because the, 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 the people who are signing up on, say, the consultation tiers tend to be of similar types to each yes, other. Yes, they do. Yes. So it's, 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 you generally sort of approach it in the same way. It's like INTP, INTJ, INFJ, INFP, I think, are the most common ones that, yes. that we get. Yes. And it's like, for example, uh, there's quite a lot of psychosomatic stuff. And uh, I think, Steve, you were saying before mm. that um, 
uh, intuitive types tend to somaticize more than say sensing types yes like they, yes they can do I, I think your point about um you know the 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 uh types that you've just expressed that would tend to be the the kinds of uh, types from the people who ask the questions mm. um, there's some difficulty with that because I, I guess from my own style lends itself more to the practical application of things yeah. whereas yeah. the guys who are asking these questions are typically looking for theoretical explanations yes. which yes. are in and of themselves are absolutely fine but that might not take you beyond a particular point yeah. It's one thing to understand something conceptually, and, and it's very valuable to understand something conceptually, but the actual uh, practical application of that is sometimes lost, I think, in, in overemphasizing a, mm. just a purely theoretical answer to something. Mm. Okay. So uh, this is where it can be helpful to for someone to give an example or to say, well, this is a situation that you know I've, I've found myself in and mm. how might I typically deal with that, but it tends... We tend not to get those kinds of questions for the reasons that you've said. Yeah, yeah. Which is no criticism of of, of the questions we're getting by any means, but um, for us, uh, you know, our whole life has been about the clinical application of yeah. things. Yeah, that's the difference between learning something it for is. fun. I think lots of guys are interested in this stuff for fun. Yes. And learning something because either you're suffering or you want to really alleviate suffering in others. Yeah. When you get to that point, yes. it's like the fluff disappears. Yes. You know? Sometimes things can be fun. Sometimes, you know, a little, well, little bit philosophy of, here and there. Of course, it can. And it, it, can, it can be interesting to sort of play around with ideas and, and to sort of build theoretical models and so on. But at the end of the day, my take on it, and, and you might say, well, this is a feature of my type, and it probably is, is it's, it's clinical, it's practical application mm. to people and to everyday lives. And... Uh, you know, uh, that would be my emphasis. So mm. I, I'm aware I may have, may not have answered it maybe in the way that this particular, you know, gentleman would like me to, but but for me that's where it's at. Mm. Okay, okay. Yeah, so after this you don't want to go and discuss privately the ins and outs of complex theory and everything like that? Well, it, it's not that it doesn't interest me and it's not that I don't do that, but, but it, it has to deliver in some other way, otherwise what's... For me, it's what's the inherent value of it. I agree. Beyond yeah. that, otherwise. So. Yeah. This is good. Hope that, uh, hope that helps tonight, child. This question comes from Zero Point. Zero, Zero Point asks, does the aspect of Gestalt therapy regarding the drive to completion of unfinished issues make its way into a modern Jungian model? Or, if not, how does this concept of nagging discomfort until the issue is done factor into a meta-model of effective psychological therapy, whether Jungian or otherwise? Hi, thank you. That's a good question. Um, unfinished business, as I was familiar with it while I was uh, learning about Gestalt therapy back in the 1970s, um, yeah, that's, that's a very uh, usable concept. It, it, it's... Uh, user-friendly. Uh, people don't consider it to be theory-laden. It's something which you can hook into with respect to your, your everyday experience. With respect to young, unfinished business would have to do with the process of self-actualization and individuation as, if you like, a, a top layer of explanation. But anything that you um, accumulate to yourself through your life that has to do with a complex will produce the so-called nagging doubt. And beneath the layer of complexes, you can talk about archetypes if you wish, but beneath that, again, you've got instinctive pressure as well. 
genomic pressure. The genome is on a time release and at different times of our life we are under instinctive pressure to actualise our genomic potential to adapt to whatever stage of development. Insofar as we may or may not adapt, we accrue a complex around that particular issue. Uh, and anything which is not finished then becomes unfinished business and that then gives us this conscious sense of nagging doubt. So yeah, it, it's, um, it's, it's a good concept, it's user friendly, you can easily transpose that over into Young without any difficulty at all. So yeah, no problem with that. Alright, and this question comes from Zero Point. And he asks, when we think of the unconscious as a hard drive we can plug into and receive information from, are there any other useful models that directly map the psyche to the parts of a computer, or to the nature of computer programs? As someone with a background studying computer programming and now learning about psychotherapy and hypnosis, there is an uncanny feeling of parity between the fields. I'm curious which books, lectures, teachers or fields go into this in a way that is most contiguous with the Jungian map of the psyche. What do you think, Steve? Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, you're obviously going to be familiar with cognitive neuroscience. I, I wonder if you're as familiar with effective neuroscience, that's emotional neuroscience, which um, the, the teacher who's most closely associated with that is the late Jack Pangsep. That's Jack as J-A-A-K Pangsep. Um, most of the the cutting edge of development at the moment within psychodynamics and science and information processing is moving away from the uh, the hard cognitive computer modeling into the so-called effective neurosciences <clears throat> and specifically into a field called neuropsychoanalysis and this is very different very very different but I would highly recommend you you, you check their work out so the leading figures are Eric Goodwin the Neurobiology of the Gods, Jack Pansep, anything you can get on him, Mark Solms, that's S-O-L-M-S, who is uh, one of the founders of the neuropsychoanalytic movement, and then John Ryan Huell, it's spelled H-A-U-L-E. Um, he is a Jungian analyst who has written extensively on the crossover with uh, neuroscience, including effective neuroscience. Um, and generally all of these writers are uh, critical of a computer modelling base for information processing with respect to uh, Jung's model. I'm, I'm sure that you're happy where, you, where you're at because of your background with respect to cognitive neuroscience and its uh, capacity to work with, if you like, the development of Jungian theory, but I would highly recommend you look at effective neuroscience and where a neuropsychoanalysis is going. Mm. Just for fun, I was thinking about it as you were speaking there. Biopsychosocial hardware mm. software network. Yeah, because yeah. they sort of network with each other. But in terms of, you know, if you're talking about a Jungian model, it's like what, like complexes and you want shadow and anima animus and self or genomic self. It's like, mm. I can't think of anything that can actually work in that regard in terms of software that's going to be the level of the psyche. It doesn't really make any sense. Unless someone else who's a computer programmer is getting very excited by this, wants to comment down below what they think. Maybe they know about the BIOS and stuff like that. No idea. Could be good, good fun to think about, yeah, but it, it, probably it not useful. No, <laughs> pro probably not. Um, if you get into neuroscience properly, uh, and I've been using a, a term a lot recently uh, to my colleagues, 
a neurophobic complex. A lot of Jungians are neurophobic. They, they want to keep away from any idea that the brain has any function at all. Um, that's clearly just nonsense. Surely that is the silliest thing. In the it universe. is, it is, absolutely, I'm afraid, but they are like that. Whereas the neuropsychoanalysts are actually mapping um, psychodynamic structures onto the brain, not just the cortex, but also the limbic system. Um, and the so-called seven basic emotional systems that were identified by Jack Panzer. So, yeah, have a look at that. It, it might just change your perspective a little, in a very healthy direction. Uh, and just on the subject of um, neuroscience, don't, please, don't, I'm sure you don't, go on about left brain, right brain nonsense. <laughs> it's a pile of pop psychology crap. Um, just put it in the bin. And don't listen to anybody who talks like that. It's nonsense. Honestly, go to the real neuroscientists. Thanks. I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> Cheers, my friend. Thank you. All right, and this question comes from Zero Point. And he oh, asks, yeah. in a more of a spiritual life coaching or shamanic viewpoint, there is the concept that pain travels through families until someone is ready to face it. How did Jung... And how do you view the impact and implication of generational patterns of similar psychological drama? Or in other words, what is the deeper construct at play when, for example, a father who was not recognised by his own family for who he is represses the pain of that and then raises his own son in a similar way? That was sort of caught on. Uh, in the life coaching or shamanic world, there seems to be a very celebratory stance on being the one to face the pain and end the cycle for the generations. And from a lived experience perspective, this feels true to me, having gone towards that outcome. But I'm curious if or how this concept is reified in the psychoanalytic literature. Thanks. Well, thank you for your question. Yeah, thank you. That's a very complicated and deep question. Um, initially, I would say that Jungians would approach it from what Jung called the family constellation. That is to say, the family complex. Um, that's the cultural transmission, uh, transgenerationally, of issues that have occurred before and are passed on from the parents, typically to the children, and so on. I've actually uh, been involved in transgenerational familial family therapy, uh, where we've used enactments to uncouple things that have probably been laid down several hundred years before, in, in terms of even the awareness of the information that was being passed down through the family. That's actually a common thing to experience. So there is a cultural transmission that can be dealt with as a collective or a family complex. And Jung did write extensively about that in um, volume two of his collected works, Experimental Researches. He, he carried out word association tests and even found that people had similar physiological responses to the same concepts that were being passed on and down through families. Then of course, uh, there's the epigenetic potential, which I'm sure James will comment upon, mm. uh, which will have a factor as well. As for being the one who stands up and says enough is enough, yes, I've been involved uh, in that, in therapy. It is a heroic thing to do, to say that it stops. Um, for example, with respect to personal disclosure, I was beaten by my father. Uh, he was beaten by his mother rather than his father, uh, heavily with a frying pan by all accounts. And he decided to pass that on to me, and I decided that it stopped. And I have never, ever physically uh, harmed, hit, 
or any any other such way my own children I never would as far as I was concerned it was stopping there and then and in terms of um, family complexes individuals are doing this all the time when they realize what's been done to them and they disidentify with the culture of the family uh, which is passing on this transgenerational uh, material and they stand up and say no very often they have to make a stand against the parents uh, or even the grandparents sometimes the great-grandparents and the, therefore the influences upon the great-grandparents so you can see these things do uh, or can pass down almost directly from a hundred hundred and fifty years right into the consulting room of today and the family of today so yeah people can make a heroic stance and I think that they should with respect to the shamanistic uh, tradition well that's one way of doing it and it can be effective we, we choose our way of dealing with things and at the moment there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of people moving in that direction it was something else before and it'll be something else again but the deep structure remains the same regardless of the approach that's used on the surface um, and I think that's the value of, of Jung in this instance that he was able to teach us how all of these different surface structure methods of dealing with things and understanding things across cultures do bottom out with basically the same thing and uh, effective neuroscience and neuropsychoanalysis is confirming this right now. So the deep structure is, is more important to me than the surface structure. I'll always go, go to that first mm. and then look at the context of the individual and then see what is the appropriate surface structure intervention for that person to reach the deep structure. And sometimes if you go directly to the deep structure you can cut out a lot of, st a lot of stuff. And I'll give you an example, it's not uh, popular amongst uh, internet followers of Jung. And that is that archetypes very often distract rather than reveal. And that if you can get down to the level of instincts, you can blow away complexes very, very easily. And in the process, archetypes just disappear because the reason for them being there as images just goes away. You don't have to be distracted by them. Instincts reflect directly genomic pressure and intentionality with respect to lifespan development. Uh, and people who have been over-educated but under-experienced in life tend to fall for the idea of archetypes very, very easily. Uh, they're very suggestible to anything which represents an idea and the more inflated the idea, the better. And that's one reason why they avoid instincts because instincts seem so unconscious and so mechanistic, so animalistic uh, and non-human that it, as if they're not worthy of intellectual attention. But that's the whole point. When you, you go through emotions, affective neuroscience, the limbic system, rather than the distraction of the cortex, you get down to instincts very quickly, and from them you get down into the genome very quickly. You can solve problems very, very quickly. So there's the deep structure. The value of ritual, when it's done properly, in an indigenous culture that has nurtured such things for centuries or even thousands of years, is that they use... Uh, those shamanistic methods or even religious methods of a more conventional kind to transduce the information from the genome through instinct into a representational form that is usually interpersonal and social and allows an acting out and a transduction transformation both ways uh, of information to bring about therapeutic change 
um, and that's what I meant by the surface structure and the deep structure interacting through some process. For example, I use enactments and that's a kind of ritual. Um, but we don't impose a structure with respect to, say, a shamanistic perspective or a religious perspective. We just provide the opportunity for the psyche to do what it wants naturally. And then the healing process emerges. And that's a topic, again, for another podcast. If people want to know what works and why what works works, then they need to approach the psyche in a naturalistic way, as far as is possible. But some cultures do nurture particular surface structures as mechanisms and vehicles for accessing deep structure. That can be shamanism. And I'm calling it surface structure, but most Westerners would think of it as being deep structure, mainly because it's different to what they experience. But there are many, many ways of getting down to the depths of the psyche. And uh, shamanism is cultural. It might be culturally specific. It might be attractive because it's different. Just as in the 60s, people were drawn to India. India was the font of all wisdom, and it is of a lot of wisdom. Uh, but many Westerners who went with the Beatles out to, uh, out to India, a lot of the hippies of my generation that went out there, ended up trying to tack on things that did not take because they were not of that culture. They didn't have it sufficiently into their genome even uh, for it to take in, in an authentic way. The best way to solve that conundrum is to ask the psyche to give you, the ego, ego consciousness, what it wants to give you in the form that it thinks will help, and then you'll get all the information that you need. So from my perspective, that's what I do. Naturalistic approach to the psyche. You get to the deep structures very, very quickly then. Yeah, I like that, and it's just a little comment on your, um, you mentioned about archetypal images, distract. Mm. Mm. Uh, I understand, we've been critiqued as a team many, many, many times mm -hmm. for saying such things. And yeah. I, I kind of understand it, where people are coming from, because it makes life more interesting, mm. the archetypal images. Mm. Uh, I, I love the image of the knight and stuff like that. You see that the, the thumbnails that I make for these videos, they have a particular style, and my dreams will produce these, and active imagination will produce these things. But... If you, this is the importance of grounding it in biology so much. It's like, if you believe in evolution, you know, which is kind of a silly thing to even say, but take like Charles Darwin, for example. If, if he was right, if you take that as a principle, then human beings are a part of the animal kingdom. And therefore we're not separate to the other animals in terms of lifespan development. And that blows away the archetypal images thing immediately. Yeah. You know, it's like, in a clinical setting, that's all that could ever work. But you mentioned epigenetics earlier mm. and how this mm. through epigenetics. It could be epigenetics, it could be transposons, not entire, or multiple different different models. We were talking yeah. in an earlier question today that you know complexes can be spread biopsycho or socially. Yeah. Yeah. So the normal one that you'd think would be psychological complex. You know, you receive some kind of trauma, for example, and it affects you in some way. Or there's an influence from your mum or your dad and you have a complex that forms in that particular way. Yeah. But why not? Why couldn't it be passed biologically? Yeah. You indeed. know, it can be passed socially, it could be passed psychologically. Yeah. Why not? Indeed, you know? yes, so indeed. I don't know what the mechanism for that is, but if a very, very wealthy um, investor wants to give me a biology lab, we can get started immediately. Yeah. And that would be nice. It would be good. It would be good. Alright, and this question comes from Mooseman. He asks, that. did Carl Jung believe in evolution, or did he believe in the Christian myth of Adam and Eve as the creation of man? I'll let you take this to start with. Uh, ooh, well, both. And as James has mentioned before, that's a paradox and a potential neurosis because it's a division that is so fundamental. 
you would have to have a deeper structure than either of those to link them together and maintain an ordinary orientation to life consciously because otherwise you would be in permanent conflict with yourself so that there has to be some way of bridging those two things together. In Carl Jung's case that will be his personal myth. If you have access to that in the sense that you understand it and what fed into it you will be at peace with that division in Carl Jung and you won't feel inclined particularly to criticise him for being divided. You may disagree with either one of those two poles but you would understand the fact that he had both. Um, I would say that if you actually cornered him, if, if, if that were even possible, if, if you could corner him he would protest that he was scientific and that therefore yeah. he, he believed in evolution. But then he would look at the psyche as an evolutionary factor uh, within which there were archetypes, as he called them, and therefore the archetypal images that expressed them. Uh, and then there is the individual's way of understanding that through his own personal myth. And very often what passes as a personal myth is in fact a collective myth. It's something which is ingested from the environment, through culture, and that's fine if you can live your life by that, but you will not individuate through a collective myth. You can't, because you don't become an individual, you become part of a collective and your psyche remains at that level. If you're going to individuate through the notion of a personal myth, uh, then you have to take on everything that you believe in ruthlessly. You have to pressure test it to breaking point and see what's left standing at the end. And if you can then knit that together, you do have a genuine personal myth which is individual to you. I believe, for what that's worth, bearing in mind that belief proves nothing, as Jung said, other than the phenomenon of belief, uh, what I believe is that Carl Jung did manage that. He pulled that off in his own life, which is why he never really particularly felt obliged to explain himself in any definitive way about what he believed. So for him, yep, Darwin, and yep, Jesus. No problem. <laughs> and. Uh, in your own life, you'll be obliged, as we all are, if we are introspective and want to find or make some kind of meaning for ourselves, to go through a similar process. But similar is not the same. If you merely try to copy Carl Jung, you will fail to become an individual for all sorts of psychological and psychodynamic reasons. Uh, so don't do it. Be inspired by him, admire him, but become yourself. Mm. For anyone who doesn't know about the Adam and Eve thing, because uh, I realise we actually just sort of jumped to we kind of presume what a psychological model might be acted out through like narrative form. To take from Neumann for a moment, because Neumann was a, was a student of Jung's and he wrote his book Origins and History of Consciousness quite late in Jung's life and Jung said it was the book he wished he'd written and so therefore that's you know a safe case to make. Yeah. I mean there, there's a general case in that book that the development of the ego over an individual's lifespan matches the development of mankind as such. So phylogeny and ontogeny sort of match each other together. So the evolutionary process would be like, okay, we started off without an ego, and then the ego evolved. And then an ego of an individual forms after the individual psyche is formed, is the argument in that book. And so therefore, from the perspective of the ego, how does it explain what happened to itself before it was formed? Yeah. It's like, well, it looks back and it fills in the gaps. Yeah. And so that's what that 
book is all about. But Anthony Stevens has come along and debunked that. He called yeah. it a great book, yeah. but a misguided book. Yeah. And it's, it's now known that those things are not true. Yeah. That, that phylogeny and ontogeny do not match each other. So, you know, the, the, the Adam and Eve thing is kind of like, okay, well, one day we became aware of things and we became aware of mortality as the ego fell and this is paradise lost and Satan yeah. falling from heaven. Yeah. And it's like... Fun story, makes sense, clinically utterly useless. Yeah, it is. And so therefore, you know, obviously it, we're talking about practical stuff on this channel. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it is useless, um, except in those cases, of course, Jack James, and I know that you, you uh, understand and appreciate this, where someone comes in with a specific religious structure to their belief, in which case, of course, you just work with that and you accept it for what it is. Uh, in terms of it meaning anything beyond that, though, yes, uh, it, it would be. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, 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 in terms of like a tool in your suite of tools, it's like yeah. that's what we were talking about earlier with like these archetypal images and these yeah. stories. It's like you wouldn't use them to treat somebody, but um, they can be good fun. I'm not going to lie; yeah. they yeah. can be good fun. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you can certainly um, you can certainly utilize what people come in with. Uh, my, my my concern is where I have seen this so often that it becomes what Alfred Adler called a, a guiding fiction or a neurotic alibi beneath which there is private logic, beneath which is a neurosis, uh, a maladaptation. Uh, and this is the kind of layering that you see clinically that people who are mainly focused on their own personal development don't get to see because they can't stand outside of themselves objectively enough. Uh, and that's understandable and that's perfectly reasonable you're on your own journey, you're not trying to work with other people and their problems. But as soon as you do, your perspective on yourself will change, you, you, you will see different things. And one thing about, um, in support of what James was saying about the way that the ego tries to understand itself, there is such a thing as internal projection from the ego. Um, and that's an example of it, because ego consciousness knows only itself. The unconscious is something completely different, really is completely different. We should have a naturalistic perspective with respect to the unconscious and allow it to express itself. We should not project internally a model of the ego into the darkness of the unconscious because all we're going to do then is see ourselves. We'll see perhaps an enlarged version of the ego and we might then call that the self in a Jungian sense. Um, mistakenly believing that the concept from Jung is what we're experiencing rather than it just being an ego fiction, just being an illusion. Um, you won't get any further personal development by doing that. You'll, you'll certainly amuse and occupy yourself and waste some time and it might even distract you from stress or, or whatever in that sense it's useful but you're not getting to the truth that way by projecting internally. And when we train deaf psychologists and psychotherapists this is one of the hard lessons they have to learn that you must avoid doing that. And the minute that you stop doing that, the unconscious will present in its natural form to you. And that's completely different. A very, very different experience. So you have to set all theory aside. And Jung himself said that. He offered the theory on the basis of his experience and then said very wisely, set it aside. But how many people actually do that? They don't. They, they start to look for definite things. Uh, and once you've learned something, that becomes part of your ego consciousness, part of your self-concept, because you identify with the theory. That theory then is internally projected. And if people think, well, projection's unconscious, so surely that can't be the case. The, the, the ego has its own unconsciousness, 
which are its tacit and implicit beliefs which it has acquired and will not critically test. Mm -hmm. And they are, if you like, the things that are projected most easily internally in an effort to understand the inner world. The minute you stop doing that, and I know this for a fact, when I, and when I train people as well, and they experience it, it's life-changing for them, because the unconscious tells them what the unconscious is at that point. It communicates openly. When you set all theory aside, that's the way to go. And this question comes from Blessed by the Gull, and he or she... Uh, pretty sure he actually says this question is probably more directed towards Steve and Pauline. Unfortunately, uh, I am the new Steve, so it's going to be Pauline and James. How would you, how would you go about treating addiction in someone today using the IPSA and the biopsychosocial model? Any stories to share? I think it would be an interesting comparison between the biopsychosocial way of treating addiction and other treatments used today. And to be honest, I think it could be helpful for us to know about the methods you use so that we can try to be try to treat the addictions we might develop in the future, or even have today. It's an enormous question, so I will give you the privilege of starting Thank you, James. with that. <laughs> well, in the context of the, the biopsychosocial model, I would start with biology every time. Um, you have to work bottom up, because nothing else will take if you don't do that and you don't address things at that level. So we're back to the level of instincts again, probably, with respect to addiction and, and, and what is driving that addiction and what it might. It depends on the addiction, of course, as well, the type of addiction. Um, but the thing that seems to, to drive most addictions, if I if broaden it out, um, is people not registering, and we've talked about these things before in other podcasts, um, or not, not being satiated properly. And it just depends what that means in, in any individual context. Mm -hmm. So people need to, obviously, if, if, if they're um, reflecting on this themselves, obviously they have to look at their own context and look at what instincts might be being um, frustrated. And, you know, people go on all sorts of uh, binges and rampages, don't they, with, with drink and drugs and bad relationships and all of these kinds of things. Yeah. And that it, it's important to find out what stands behind that and, and what is driving that addiction. And I, like I said, I think the only way to do that is to come back to instincts every time and find out what instincts are being frustrated in that person's life because they, you know, they won't... Um, thing about instincts is that uh, they want you to take notice. They, they you know, they, they don't... Um, they're not going to let up until you acknowledge them. They're, they're so fundamental to, to our being and our well-being that they have to be addressed. Mm. Yeah, the um, blessed, blessed by the Gulls is something interesting. It's like, what's the difference between, say, the IPSA way versus yes. sort of the modern way? And I guess, theoretically, the modern way, if you like, is everything is chemically based and solely chemically based. Yes. So like if, if you're addicted to cigarettes, it's because of nicotine. And yes. then if you try and go cold turkey, it's going to be like three weeks of absolute pain. Yes. And then you will quit. Or alcohol, well, it's because of chemical stuff. Or cocaine is chemical sure. stuff. Or heroin is chemical stuff. It's like, yeah, there will, for biopsychosocial, there will be a chemical or biochemical basis. But it blends with that psychological layer as well and that social layer too, right? It does. So uh, I know that Steve's talked about on the channel before, about, oh, sorry, myself, has, has, has yeah. talked about on the channel before about treating um, cigarette addiction and alcohol addiction with hypnosis. 
Mm. It's like, well, how do you square that? Where are the massive withdrawal symptoms with that? Yes. You know, it's like um, Alan Carr's easy way to stop smoking is this hypnotic piece of work. And people will go to his clinics, or they did, because he's, he's deceased now, mm. go to his clinics, and then they come away completely quit, no withdrawals. It's like, how would you explain that without a biopsychosocial approach? You know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how anything else could make sense. Um, but to direct people as well, we did a three-part series a few months ago on... Uh, addiction and i'll leave a link to that playlist in the description down yes. below um the first <clears throat> the first video unfortunately is blocked in america because of some music that we use there's oh, like a yes. copyright claim right. so if you go to the if you're in the u.s go to the second video and in the description there's a link that sends you to BitChute to watch the first one i know people have mentioned mm. messages before yes about that. yes yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. Is there anything else we could say on that is there anything else you wanted to say on this question Well, people sometimes, I, I think, like I said before, don't realise how important instincts are. And it, it's, you know, it's probably important to be able to define maybe what some of those driving forces are. Yeah. Um, I mean, the obvious one, as of now, of course, it, it is the way people are being frustrated through lockdown again we've, we've, we've touched on mm. on these kinds of things before the way people feel uh, trapped in their own homes the way they, f they they feel caged almost um we've talked about uh, animal experimentation and, and how um badly animals respond mm. to being caged and and how it affects all those fundamental biological systems such as um, you know appetite and um, the need for, for rest for sleep um, the normal reproductive cycles become um, disrupted there's Ooh. so many biological levels at, at which um, a person becomes affected affected if they feel trapped or caged in some way because instinctively you know that it's not right to live like that and yeah. we've got um obviously another impending lockdown coming up and i think people are reacting to that very very badly actually yeah. and understandably so because it's contranatural yeah it's, it's not right for be people to be caged in the homes in the way that they are and Again, we've touched on this in other podcasts um, about the way that people are likely to respond to this. And I think they're likely uh, increasingly to respond to it in a, in a violent way, mm. in an aggressive way, because th there will be, there'll be a need for, um, to be able to assert those instincts in a way that has health for that person and, and if it means resorting to aggression and violence i'm not advocating that but you can understand that it will push people in that direction oh, yeah. and we're certainly seeing for example an awful lot of suicides in young yeah. men particularly at the moment uh, almost an alarming amount of suicides in fact one of our um uh, our, our son's close childhood friends has recently committed suicide it's it's an absolute tragedy on what is becoming an increasingly large scale as well we were literally seeing it day in and day out young people young men in particular who are just deciding enough is enough and yeah. taking themselves out it's almost as if that's the only way they have left of asserting themselves yeah. um and it's a very very sad situation indeed but i think it will be if nothing else interesting to see how people react 
to this you know forthcoming lockdown I mean at the moment it's a bit of a kind of a halfway stage but there is talk for example even of bringing the army in and uh, you know once those kinds of things happen it you know people are going to get increasingly angry and frustrated because like I say it's just it's contra natural to or natural to be you know forced to live in that way so yeah. then you see the instincts very much in the raw when this kind of thing happens and you see the importance of them and how they insist themselves and and, and uh, want to be taken notice of so that's a, it's a very you know um relevant example for now i think of uh, of the kind of things that people are battling with and obviously um you know, people will have things within their own personal context as well, as well as the wider culture that uh, they may be reacting to very badly as well. So, it, you know, they're at the bottom of everything. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. I mean, we did a contest a while ago on the Discord server about how the anima uh, operates at different levels of the yes, biopsychosocial stack. Indeed, and yeah. what, what, you, what you just explained with that sad story and indeed yes. with this, you know, increasing violent or potential for violence. There is the potential like, for it. The yes. anima is going to operate at those levels too. The, yeah. the the political system, the economic system and everything like that. It's like, so to answer, you know, blessed by the goal again yes. in, in that way, it's yes. kind of like all of these things will factor into an individual at the intersection of like space and time, moment to moment, constantly. So it's like, it's not quite as simple as, um, you know, uh, I, I have a chemical addiction. No, no, absolutely not, because we, we, we live in a wider context, as you rightly say, James, um, whereby we can't escape the culture that we live in and, and that we grow up in, mm. and so that has to be taken into account. But we also have to, to understand, too, that we have a biology um, and uh, you know, we at, at bottom we are animals. We're human animals, but we are animals. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, you can't book biology without creating huge problems for yourself. Yeah. So Agreed. things do need to be addressed at every level. But always start with biology. Uh, then look at um, you know uh, the social situation and, and and the cultural context for that person and how they interface with that and um, what influences might be coming from from the culture at large and then finally psychology mm. so I'd come to that last mm. yeah what I would probably add to that Jane is that people obviously are, are going to almost be forced to to turn to substances to substance abuse in order to deal with some of those frustrations as well mm. um, how else do do you know people who and the people in so many different contexts would be people who um older people who are living alone or people who've been recently bereaved people who have lost their jobs there are so many uh, so much fallout socioculturally from the situation that we mm. find ourselves in so we'll probably see a spike if anything uh, in, in people turning towards substances to deal with these, the stresses that they're under uh, and, and understandably so but I think a, a knowledge and understanding of, of that instinctive pressure for some people might even just allow allow them to bring themselves back from the brink before they may be find themselves uh, engaging in those options but just you know it's completely understandable that people will be drawn to those kinds of things just, just mm. to try and ease their way through what is a very unnatural situation mm. thank you thank you right, okay and this question comes from moose man and moose man asks short and simple can complexes live on after an individual has died 
either by natural causes or by suicide? Well, uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. I know James has a particular view on this, which is uh, which is interesting and illustrates the biopsychosocial model very well. James. Yeah, yeah, we were just discussing before this. Um, if you think, of, I was thinking of uh, Dawkins' selfish gene model mm -hmm. and what he says about altruism. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of a weird thing because why would an individual sacrifice themselves for another individual? Because surely your own genome wants to survive. Mm -hmm. but the whole idea with that model is you sacrifice yourself for people who have a similar genome to you so that the similar genes or the genes that you share live on. So if you think about that in terms of like a biopsychosocial model and how things can bleed from one individual to another, then a complex that manifests psychosocially can, if the individual dies, mm -hmm. spread on to that other person and continue living through them. Yeah. So it's, it's a, just a different reframe. It's like if an organism dies, surely a complex can't continue living on in the biology. But it can in like the social sphere. Yes, it can, absolutely. And of course, with um, a shared complex, such as a family complex, or any systems level above an individual with respect to the biopsychosocial model, as it's all down to influence and suggestion and then taking root, it can actually infect, as James mentioned actually earlier, off camera, it can affect other people biologically or psychobiologically as well. So once these things start, and they can metastasize and spread around all over the place. So for an individual it might die off, but that influence with and between others who were in the uh, influential sphere of the original person, yeah, definitely can live on, albeit not in that individual. question comes from Under Solstice 93 otherwise known as Jake. Jake says, Hi James, Steve and Pauline. I have a question relating to imposter syndrome. Do you come across this a lot in your clinical practice? Is it a complex manifesting itself or is it due to a fragile ego? How might I overcome the feeling of being an imposter while I progress through a career and specifically at university? And he follows up by saying, just to add further to my question above, with the feeling of being an imposter in relation to my work, to be more specific, I work in frontline healthcare and a mature student studying biomedical science at university. Good choices, by the way. Be due to suppressed instincts. I ask this as I continue to grapple with the material already out there on the Discord and the YouTube channel, and I'm trying to make sense of all of the previous discussions. Sorry if this is a repeated question. Not at all, Jake. We've discussed imposter syndrome once or twice on the channel before, but usually just in, in passing. But I guess I will pass over to you, Pauline. Well, I'm not so sure it exists, James, to be honest with you. Um, I think it's almost been manufactured by the culture um, to just simply describe maybe um, the way that somebody feels about themselves. I mean, I, I would almost be more drawn to Adler's ideas, for example, of inferiority and superiority complex yeah. and how they play out in people's lives. And, you know, I, I think it's probably um, a more helpful direction to come from as well because... Um, People, for example, who have a superiority complex, they will compensate for that by behaving in an inferior way. So sometimes it's just that a person's not really living up to their genomic potential. Mm. Uh, and I think to think of it as being an imposter syndrome is it's such a negative suggestion, isn't it? And self-suggestion to make. It is. I'm an imposter. And yes. also, I've got a syndrome as yes. well. Especially yes. when a syndrome, when you look into a syndrome, it's yeah. not a, a real thing insofar yes. as it's like cause and effect. It's just yes. a series of symptoms that 
just seem to manifest together. That's right, a bit of a catch-all, isn't it? Yeah, really? I've just, just looked it up on Google there yeah. for the, you know, the strict definition of yes. this. Imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern in which an individual doubts their accomplishments or talents and has a yeah. persistent internalised fear of being exposed as a fraud. It's like, is, is that really what people mean when they feel they have imposter syndrome? Mm. Well, that's a very good point, isn't it? I mean, sometimes people will feel and express that self-doubt, um, maybe through other complexes that, that, are, that are acting on them negatively. They could be parental complexes, internalised parental complexes. They could be a, a whole host of things. But I don't believe in and of itself it, it's a helpful way to, to think about things or to frame things. It may simply be that um, that it's been suggested to that person that they can't do X, Y and Z or they're not particularly good at X, Y and Z yeah. and, and actually another part of them doesn't really believe that and then of course they become divided on the inside as they feel that split within mm. themselves between the activity of the complexes which are, are that the rhetoric of the complexes if you like and what they actually know to be true about themselves and so they kind of fall down between two stools mm. but you know it may simply be that person not living up to their genomic potential or feeling yeah. uh, almost embarrassed to do that um, and if that's happening, that's, that's really very sad, isn't it? Because um, it is. It at is. the end of the day, um, that's what we should all be um, you know, working towards, to, to be ourselves as completely as we can be. Yeah. So I, I, I worry about it. I mean, I, I've, <laughs> I, I've heard so many young, particularly young people, say it about themselves. But I think a lot of it is just, it's seems to have come out of the culture and obviously it's grabbed a lot of young people's attention and it's so easy to google these things these days yeah. and to you know to see yourself in the material that you read and i would just say be very very careful and it's probably more likely actually that you're just not living up to you your potential and there are some you know, negative complexes at work that are maybe trying to um, prevent you from doing that. Yeah. But becoming conscious of that is probably enough of a start to be able to overcome them. So I, I, I personally would ditch it. I'd bin it. Yeah. I don't think it's helpful at all. Completely agree. I'm going to use a famous Steve quote from the channel. Uh, go back to instincts. Yes. It's like if, if you if you if you feel you've got imposter syndrome and you yes. can you can do this on yourself relatively safely. It's like uh, we've given the IPSA students actual like forms to do this, you know, officially or formally. But yes. anyone anyone can do it. So what are your your biopsychosocial parameters that are at work? and see which instincts of yours may be not being expressed or may be suppressed. It's like I've worked with guys and girls actually who've signed up to the consultations here on Patreon saying that they've got imposter syndrome and it's like I remember one girl I worked with the issue was actually with her family mm. and a guy that I've worked with or some, pretty much all the guys I've worked with with it are issues involving status and of course Jake this has to be bespoke to yourself so you know, I wouldn't necessarily go looking in those places but it goes to show that you present with a syndrome which is like a CBT buzzword that you've read online yes it's actually a completely different thing that goes back down into the instincts and it's like I guess that's you know one of our core things we talk about on the channel yes it is yes yeah. absolutely it is yeah, yeah. Get back in touch with with instincts, and and everything else will correct for itself without a doubt. Yeah, but you obviously you have to, you have to try and work out for yourself in your own particular context what instincts um, 
might be, you know, not being expressed properly or frustrated in some way. Um, it's not a difficult thing to do, but I think it's a more productive thing to do than to simply give yourself a, a such a, um, a nebulous label as well, isn't it, really? Yeah. Like we said before, it's such a catch-all. I think you have to be very, very careful. Yeah. Agreed.